Fast Asleep with Gina Marie. Hello, I'm Gina. Marie is, well, still busy. I love that you keep coming back for these stories. Well, I know why you do. You found your niche. Classic short stories by classic authors. It's real literature. It's not a waste of time. That's just known as good taste. Anyway, thank you for keeping Fast Asleep with Gina Marie here with your reviews, your comments, your subscriptions. Oh, and please don't forget to drop our keyword, which you can find at the end of each episode, into comments. Thank you. Let's go back to last week. Young Truman Capote, and he was young, provided us with two stories of men, their partnerships, and their tears. This week, (laughs) we turn to H.G. Wells for his version of male partnership, Herbert George Wells, with his, have you noticed, very distinctive eyebrows, Oh, and his mustache, yeah. He was known as the father of science fiction, of course. We know. We know his The Time Machine, um, Invisible Man, right? But he wrote in many genres, dozens of short stories, yes, and over 50 novels, and even nonfiction as well. But get this, Wells was first a science teacher. Oh, that's right, Winnie the Pooh creator, Alan Alexander, A.A. Milne, was one of his students. He later became a, and we're back to Wells now, a writer, uh, a historian, and a social critic. He was a progressive thinker, and Wells foresaw space travel, nuclear weapons, satellite television, and even something really close to the World Wide Web. His, um, well, his inventive thinking and, of course, his writing, what I'm trying to say is, made him famous. He was famous during his lifetime, but he's still remembered very fondly now. He's on a postage stamp in the UK, and we remember him here. Of course, it's pretty obvious as you scroll back. Um, Earlier episodes on Fast Asleep, his The Star... That's episode number 160, if you're interested. The Door in the Wall, that's two episodes, number 132, 133. And, oh, way far back in Fast Asleep Time, The Magic Shop, number 34. All right, I promise, just two more interesting facts. I have to pass them along to you. First, okay, yes, it's said that he had a few affairs while married. All right. Um, but here's the interesting part. He had to have still been an okay guy because, get this, Nazis burned his books. Go, Wells. And two, he wanted his epitaph to read, I told you so, you damn fools. Tuck in, everybody, for a little greed a little adventure, and some suspense from H.G. Wells with The Treasure in the Forest.
the canoe was now approaching the land. The bay opened out and a gap in the white surf of the reef marked where the little river ran out to the sea. The thicker and deeper green of the virgin forest showed its course down the distant hill slope. The forest here came close to the beach, far beyond. Dim and almost cloud-like in texture rose the mountains, like suddenly frozen waves. The sea was still, save for an almost imperceptible swell. The sky blazed. The man with the carved paddle stopped. Oh, it should be somewhere here, he said. He shipped the paddle and held his arms out straight before him. The other man had been in the forepart of the canoe, closely scrutinizing the land. He had a sheet of yellow paper on his knee. Come, look at this, Evans, he said. Both men spoke in low tones, and their lips were hard and dry. The man called Evans came swaying along the canoe until he could look over his companion's shoulder. The paper had the appearance of a rough map. By much folding, it was creased and worn to the pitch of separation, and the second man held the discolored fragments together where they had parted. On it, one could dimly make out in almost obliterated pencil, the outline of the bay. Here, said Evans, is the reef, and uh, here is the gap, he ran his thumbnail over the chart. This curved and twisting line, it's the river. Oh, I could do with a drink now. And this star is the place. Mm. Now, do you see this dotted line, said the man with the map. It is a straight line and runs from the opening of the reef to a clump of palm trees. The star comes just where it cuts the river. We must mark the place as we go into the lagoon. It's queer, said Evans, after a pause. What... These little marks down here are four. It looks like the plan of a house or something, but what all these little dashes pointing this way and that may mean, I, I can't get a notion. And what's, what's the writing? Chinese, said the man with the map. Oh, of course, he was Chinese, said Evans. They all were, said the man with the map. They both sat for some minutes, staring at the land, while the canoe drifted slowly. Then Evans looked <laughs> towards the paddle. Your turn with the paddle now, Hooker, said he. And his companion quietly folded up his map, put it in his pocket, 
past Evans carefully and began to paddle. His movements were languid, like those of a man whose strength was nearly exhausted. Evans sat with his eyes half closed, watching the frothy breakwater of the coral creep nearer and nearer. The sky was like a furnace, for the sun was near the zenith. Though they were so near the treasure, he did not feel the exultation he had anticipated. The intense excitement of the struggle for the plan and the long night voyage from the mainland in the unprovisioned canoe had, to use his own expression, taken it out of him. He tried to arouse himself by directing his mind to the ingots the Chinese men had spoken of, but it would not rest there. It came back headlong to the thought of sweet water rippling in that river and to the almost unendurable dryness of his lips and throat. The rhythmic wash of the sea upon the reef was becoming audible now, and it had a pleasant sound in his ears. The water washed along the side of the canoe, and the paddle dripped between each stroke. Presently, he began to doze. He was still dimly conscious of the island, but a queer dream texture interwove with his sensations. Once again, it was the night when he and Hooker had hit upon the Chinese secret. He saw the moonlit trees, the little fire burning, and the black figures of the three Chinese men, silvered on one side by moonlight, and on the other glowing from the firelight, and heard them talking together in broken English, for they came from different provinces. Hooker had caught the drift of their talk first and had motioned to him to listen. Fragments of the conversation were inaudible and fragments incomprehensible. A Spanish galleon from the Philippines, hopelessly aground, and its treasure buried against the day of return. Both lay in the background of the story. A shipwrecked crew, thinned by disease, 
a quarrel or so and the needs of discipline and at last taking to their boats never to be heard of again then Chung Hai only a year since wandering ashore had happened upon the ingots hidden for two hundred years had deserted his junk his boat and reburied them with infinite toil single-handed but very safe he had laid great stress on the safety it was a secret of his now he wanted help to return and exhume them presently the little map fluttered and the voices sank a fine story for two stranded British wastrels to hear. Evans' dream now shifted to the moment when he had Chung Hai's pigtail in his hand, more properly known as a cue and associated with the Manchu people of northeast China. Well, Evans believed that the life of a man from China is scarcely sacred like a European's. Hmm. The face of Chung Hai, first keen and furious like a startled snake, and then fearful treacherous and pitiful became overwhelmingly prominent in the dream. At the end, Chung Hai had grinned a most incomprehensible and startling grin. Abruptly, things became very unpleasant, as they will do at times in dreams. Chung Hai gibbered and threatened him he saw in his dream heaps and heaps of gold and Chung Hai intervening and struggling to hold him back from it. He took Chung Hai by the queue. Oh, how big the brute was and how he struggled and grinned. He kept growing bigger, too, and then the bright heaps of gold turned to a roaring furnace and a vast devil, surprisingly like Chung Hai, but with a huge black tail, began to feed him with coals. Oh, they burnt his mouth horribly. Another devil was shouting his name, Evans! Oh, Evans, you sleepy fool! Or was it Hooker? He woke up. They were in the mouth of the lagoon. There are the three palm trees. It must be in a line with that clump of bushes, said his companion. Mark that. If we go to the bushes and then strike into the bush 
in a straight line from here. We shall come to it when we come to the stream. They could see now where the mouth of the stream opened out. At the sight of it, Evans revived. Oh, hurry up, man, he said, or by heavens, I shall have to drink seawater. He gnawed his hand and stared at the gleam of silver among the rocks and green tangle. Presently, he turned almost fiercely upon Hooker. Ah, oh, give me the paddle, he said. So they reached the river mouth. A little way up, Hooker took some water in the hollow of his hand. He tasted it and oof, spat it out. A little further, he tried again. Ah, uh, now, this will do, he said. And they began drinking eagerly. Oh, curse this, said Evans suddenly. It's too slow. And leaning dangerously over the forepart of the canoe, he began to suck up the water directly with his lips. <sighs> Presently, they made an end of drinking and running the canoe into a little creek were about to land among the thick growth that overhung the water. Oh, we shall have to scramble through this to the beach to find our bushes and get the line to the place, said Evans. Well, we'd better paddle round, said Hooker. So they pushed out again into the river and paddled back down it to the sea and along the shore to the place where the clump of bushes grew. Here they landed and pulled the light canoe far up the beach and then went up towards the edge of the jungle until they could see the opening of the reef and the bushes in a straight line. Now Evans had taken a native implement out of the canoe. It was L-shaped and the transverse piece was armed with polished stone. Hooker carried the paddle. Well, it is straight now. In this direction, said he, we must push through this till we strike the stream, and then we must prospect. They pushed through a close tangle of reeds and broad fronds and young trees, and at first it was toilsome going, but very speedily the trees became larger and the ground beneath them opened out. The blaze of the sunlight was replaced by insensible degrees of cool shadow. The trees became, at last, vast pillars that rose up to a canopy of greenery far overhead. Dim white flowers hung from their stems and ropey creepers swung from tree to tree. The shadow deepened. On the ground, blotched fungi and a red-brown incrustation became frequent. Evans shivered. Oh, he, it seems almost cold here after the blaze outside. Yeah, I hope we're keeping to the straight, 
said Hooker. Presently, they saw, far ahead, a gap in the somber darkness where white shafts of hot sunlight smote into the forest. There also was brilliant green undergrowth and colored flowers. Then they heard the rush of water. Oh, here is the river. Oh, we should be close to it now, said Hooker. Stay with us. We'll be right back. We should be close to it now, said Hooker. The vegetation was thick by the riverbank. Great plants, as yet unnamed, grew among the roots of the big trees and spread rosettes of huge green fans towards the strip of sky. Many flowers and a creeper with shiny foliage clung to the exposed stems. On the water of the broad, quiet pool, which the treasure seekers now overlooked, there floated big oval leaves and a waxen, pinkish-white flower, not unlike a water lily. Further, as the river bent away from them, the water suddenly frothed and became noisy in a rapid. Well, said Evans, well, we have swerved a little from the strait, said Hooker. That was to be expected. He turned and looked into the dim, cool shadows of the silent forest behind them. Now, if we beat a little way up and down the stream, we should come to something. You said, began Evans, he said, there was a heap of stones, said Hooker. The two men looked at each other for a moment. Let's try a little downstream first, said Evans. They advanced slowly, looking curiously about them. Suddenly, Evans stopped. What the devil's that? He said. Hooker followed his finger. (laughs) Something blue, he said. It had come into view as they topped a gentle swell of the ground. And then he began to distinguish what it was. He advanced suddenly with hasty steps until the body that belonged to the limp hand and arm had become visible. 
His grip tightened on the implement he carried. The thing was the figure of a Chinese man lying on his face. The abandon of the pose was unmistakable. The two men drew closer together and stood staring silently at this ominous dead body. It lay in a clear space among the trees. Nearby was a spade after the Chinese pattern, and further off lay a scattered heap of stones close to a freshly dug hole. Oh, somebody has been here before, said Hooker, clearing his throat. Well, then suddenly Evans began to swear and rave and stamp upon the ground. Hooker turned white, but said nothing. He advanced towards the prostrate body. He saw the neck was puffed and purple and the hands and ankles swollen. Ugh, he said, and suddenly turned away and went towards the excavation. He gave a cry of surprise. He shouted to Evans, who was following him slowly. You fool, it's all right. It's here still. And then he turned again and looked at the dead man, and then again at the hole. Now Evans hurried to the hole, already half exposed by the ill-fated wretch beside them, lay a number of dull yellow bars. Well, he bent down in the hole, and clearing off the soil with his bare hands, hastily pulled one of the heavy masses out. As he did so, a little thorn pricked his hand. He pulled the delicate spike out with his fingers and lifted the ingot. <laughs> Only gold or lead could weigh like this, he said exultantly. Hooker was still looking at the dead man. He was puzzled. He stole a march on his friends, he said at last. He got an early advantage. He came here alone, and, well, some poisonous snake has killed him. I wonder how he found the place. Evans, with the ingot in his hands, stood. What did a dead man signify? We shall have to take this stuff to the mainland, piecemeal, and bury it there for a while. Now, how shall we get it to the canoe? He took off his jacket, spread it on the ground, and flung two or three ingots into it. And presently, he found that a, another little thorn had punctured his skin. Now this is as much as we can carry, said he. Then suddenly, with a queer rush of irritation, What are you staring at? Hooker turned to him. I, I can't stand him, he nodded toward the corpse. It's so like rubbish, said Evans. All of these are the same. Hooker looked into his face. I'm going to bury that 
Anyhow, before I lend a hand with this stuff. Don't be a fool, Hooker, said Evans. Let that mass of corruption bide. Hooker hesitated, and then his eye went carefully over the brown soil about them. Uh, it scares me somehow, he said. The thing is, said Evans, what to do with these ingots? Shall we rebury them here or take them across the strait in the canoe? Hooker thought. His puzzled gaze wandered among the tall tree trunks and up into the remote sunlit greenery overhead. He shivered again as his eye rested upon the blue figure of the Chinese man. He stared searchingly among the gray depths between the trees. What's come to you, Hooker? said Evans. Have you lost your wits? Oh, let's get the gold out of this place, anyhow, said Hooker. He took the ends of the collar of the coat in his hands, and Evans took the opposite corners, and they lifted the mass. Which way? said Evans. To the canoe? Ah, uh, ah. Uh. You know, it's queer said Evans when they had advanced only a few steps. But my arms ache still with that paddling. Oh, curse it, he said. But they ache. I must rest. They let the coat down. Evans' face was white, and little drops of sweat stood out upon his forehead. It's stuffy, somehow in this forest. Then, with an abrupt transition to unreasonable anger, what is the good of waiting here all the day? Lend a hand, I say. You have done nothing but moon since we first saw the dead man. Hooker was looking steadfastly at his companion's face. He helped raise the coat, bearing the ingots, and they went forward, perhaps a hundred yards in silence. Evans began to breathe heavily. Can't you speak, he said. What's the matter with you, said Hooker. Evans stumbled and then with a sudden curse flung the coat from him. He stood for a moment, staring at Hooker, and then with a groan, clutched at his own throat. Don't come near me, he said, and went and leant against a tree. And then in a steadier voice, I'll be better in a minute. Presently, his grip upon the trunk loosened, and he slipped slowly down the stem of the tree until she was a crumpled heap at its foot. His hands were clenched convulsively. His face became distorted with pain. Hooker approached him. Don't touch me. Don't touch me, said Evans in a stifled voice. Put the gold back on the coat. 
Can't I do anything for you? said Hooker. Put the gold back on the coat. As Hooker handled the ingots, he felt a little prick on the ball of his thumb. He looked at his hand and saw a slender thorn, perhaps two inches in length. Evans gave an inarticulate cry and rolled over. Hooker's jaw dropped. He stared at the thorn for a moment with dilated eyes. Then he looked at Evans, who was now crumpled together on the ground, his back bending and straightening spasmodically. Then he looked through the pillars of the trees and network of creeper stems to where, in the dim gray shadow, the blue-clad body was still indistinctly visible. He thought of the little dashes in the corner of the plan. And in a moment, he understood. God help me, he said, for the thorns were similar to those the Dyaks, the indigenous people of Borneo, poison and use in their blowing tubes. He understood now what Chung Hai's assurance of the safety of his treasure meant he understood that grin now. Evans! He cried. But Evans was silent and motionless save for a horrible spasmodic twitching of his limbs. A profound silence brooded over the forest. Then Hooker began to suck furiously at the little pink spot on the ball of his thumb, sucking for dear life. Presently, he felt a strange aching pain in his arms and shoulders, and his fingers seemed difficult to bend. And then he knew that sucking was no good. Abruptly, he stopped, and sitting down by the pile of ingots and resting his chin upon his hands, and his elbows upon his knees, stared at the distorted but still quivering body of his companion. Chung Hai's grin came into his mind again. The dull pain spread towards his throat and grew slowly 
in intensity. Far above him, a faint breeze stirred the greenery and ah, the white petals of some unknown flower came floating down through the gloom. Introduction information today came from Fascinating Facts about H.G. Wells by Lorna Wallace and from other sources you'll find in our show notes. The music today is Snowflakes from Derek Fichter and background music came from The Collective Soul along with other sources also in our show notes. This week's key word is grin. Good night. Introduction information today came from Fascinating Facts about H.G. Wells by Lorna Wallace and other sources that you'll find in our show's notes. The music today is Snowflakes from Derek Fichter and background music came from The Collective Soul along with other sources also in our show notes. You can reach me at fastasleepwithginamarie44 at gmail.com or you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and even TikTok. And please, keep us here for you as you comment, like, and subscribe. Thank you. This week's key word is grin. Good night.